Well, go ahead and open your Bibles or click in your apps to James 1.26. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, you can look around you on the floor. There's a Bible there. Feel free to use that. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, I would encourage you to either ask your neighbor or look in the table of contents at the front where James is. It's a relatively small book, so you may, you may flip past it a couple of times. Um, but we're going to be looking at uh, the end of James 1 and moving into James 2 this week. Uh, but as we've been working through James for four weeks now... Um, I love it because it's, it's, it's practical, it's foundational, it's heart, it's head, it's life, it's everything. Um, and we've been really kind of working through this theme of what it is to live this undivided life. The fact that, that one of the main works that God intended to do in His redemptive work is to restore our fractured selves. To restore us to the wholeness of life in Him. And so we see that that's achieved in Christ, and then in Christ we are not only saved, but then compelled to then express this undivided life. And so we've been working through what that looks like, and now he's kind of moving into this summary statement of verses 26 and 27, and then uh, calling us to application, application immediately. But today in this section, James explains New Testament faith and religion. You're like, oh gosh, religion. Like, religion can have such a negative connotation. Like, we hear that, and it's like, even I grew I had a shirt that said, relationship, not religion. I went to one of my job interviews wearing that shirt. Relationship, I wanted them to know what I was about. Relationship, not religion. So, like, when we hear religion, it's like, you know, I mean, I would say, like, I get asked all the time, are you a religious person? No, I'm not. But yet, James is telling us there is a good religion. There's actually a religion we should strive for. When we say religion today, we're not talking about, you know, this, this, this cold, dead practice with no heart that, that expresses itself through overt control, and as some would say, is the source of all conflict and war in our world, right? I mean, that's, that's what we know of it, and that's what we feel about religion. Rather, when we talk about religion today, we're talking about the life lived unto God in response to His work in us and in the world around us, and then who we are in Him. This is religion. This is what we're pursuing today, is this outward expression of an inward reality. So when we think about it once again, it's this, this undivided life. It is you know, coming out of what we talked about last week, being hearers and doers of the Word. We don't just come in and nod our heads and then walk out and forget about it, but we come in, we encounter the Word, we are transformed, changed forever as the Holy Spirit works in us, and it has evidence in our life. We are doers, we are hearers and doers. And so there are commands to respond to, commands to follow. And so as I said, verses 26, are kind of, 26 and 27 are a summary of where we kind of came through this introductory section and it's calling us to the marks of, of true and acceptable religion. So verse 26, here we go. It says this, James 1.26. It says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So before we jump into this, let us just acknowledge what this is saying. It is saying that it is possible for you to do right things, for you to view yourself as a person living a life unto God. If we would say that as the intent of all religion is to some have, have some kind of aspiration of living in a way that reflects a, a life aimed upward. He said, so what we, what we can acknowledge just from this statement is that it's kind of like the, 
you're doing it wrong, bro. Like there's a possibility that, that it's just it's not expressing truth. It's not being it's it's not evidencing the it's not evidencing truth. So we can be intending good or maybe just intending something that we would call religion, but yet that it's not true. And so we can acknowledge that. And so let's just humble our hearts. Realize if anything corrective happens to you today, I pray that you can welcome it uh, just as you would from a good father. And I know that for some of you in here, maybe you didn't have good fathers and you don't have a picture in your head. And some of you did. And for you, it's going to be easier to think about that in these terms of the correction from a good father is an invitation. And if you didn't experience that growing up, I know it's going to be difficult. But our, our, our heavenly father is a good father. And so if anything corrective happens in, in you today, if anything, is called, if anything calls you to conviction and, and, and a need to repent and ask for forgiveness, man, I say welcome the invitation. Because God's intent and his correction as a good heavenly father is for your good and for his glory. And so we see, it says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, the person's religion is worthless. So first we see that one of the marks of true, of right and true, good religious expression, religion, faith unto God, is controlled speech that evidences a changed heart. Over and over again, Jesus, Jesus made it clear that the mouth is a great way to see what is really going on in the heart. One place we saw this is in Matthew 12, 34, as, he's, as he is addressing the Pharisees who were far more concerned with their outsides looking good than their insides being right. And he says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. And so again, we're, we're kind of zooming through these verses because they set us up for the rest of it. But just to know that the, the, the mouth evidences the heart. And so when we think about how we speak, especially if you're in here saying, I am a Christ follower, meaning I have surrendered my life into the person and way of Jesus, that our words should evidence that reality. So husbands, think about how you talk to and about your wives. Wives, think about how you talk to and about your husbands. Is it evidence that there is a, a, a change in your heart, that there is grace and mercy and peace in your heart towards people that are imperfect? And husbands and wives, you know that you get exposed to the worst of each other. And that's when it's really hard. If you're not married, think about the way that you talk to your boss or your friends or those you're in relationships with, your co-workers, the leaders of your community, our authorities in our cities, nations, and world. We don't get to talk to all of them, but how do we talk about them? Are we consistent in our speech to their face and behind their back? Gossip, biting language and anger, obscenity, or just being consumed with trivialities, just the things that don't matter in this world, but yet that is all you talk about. Like, does that reflect a transformed heart? So he's saying, if you want a mark of true faith and religion, it will evidence in your speech, controlled speech. So anyway, a mark of true faith, of, of right religion, is controlled speech. And we can extend that to self-control, period. But we live in a culture where we have outlets to make our voice known so easily. And, 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 in this, and in this soundbite society, the voice of the cynical and the critic are celebrated. They're, they're all of a sudden viewed as an authority because, well, gosh, they must know what they're talking about because that sounds good. 
we can't get sucked in, but rather we, we have to allow our words to testify to our changed hearts. This is achieved through the transforming work of Jesus. So we're not only testifying to our changed hearts and showing our, our, right, our, our, our healthy faith, our healthy religion, but we're also testifying to the goodness of God, to his truth and his love being good. The fact that through this, our speech becomes an apologetic for the truth of God. It becomes a way in which people can understand the reality of a living God who is, who is good and right and pure. So while the tongue is not the only indicator of the heart, we must see that the tongue is indeed a test of true religion. So just today, simply, let's just say this and to say it simply. It's, it's a still a pretty hefty task. But let us just set out to surrender our tongues to speak truth and love fully together at all times. So that's, it's an expression of our collective identity as well as the way that we live as ambassadors in this world. And this, we show our faith to be real. That it's something that we are. It's something that has been enacted upon us. We have, that we've experienced a true heart change that is not achieved just through behavior modification, but through the transforming work of Jesus Christ and the, the, the work of His truth through the Holy Spirit true heart change, and that our heart belongs to God because of who He is. Okay, so that's our first mark. Next, we see in verse 22, we see, that, we see two more marks they're, they're, they're of a true and acceptable religion. And the first one would be practical compassion and then personal purity. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He says the expression of living out an undivided life that has been completed in you in Christ is that it manifests in this way of life that you go and you visit the orphans and the widows and their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Practical compassion and personal purity, we tend to pick one or the other. We tend to highlight, emphasize one or the other. We see this really played out in kind of this brand of partisanship faith these days. On the, on, the le- on the right side, this right-wing conservatism, we see that it's all about doing right and being right and helping slash forcing everyone else to be right. We become a morality police. The morality of mankind is in the hands of the church, and it's the church's job to enforce morality on the entire world. So we, so we just overemphasize personal purity. Now, we know... Personal purity is good. We'll come to that in a second, but we overemphasize it. We also see this in the left-wing liberal theology. We see it where the call is to be socially aware above all and to care for the poor in tangible ways and the weak in tangible ways and to fight for the oppressed and to come and step down beside the downcast. And that's all that matters, as if there is no eternity. Now, James is pointing us to the truth of Jesus, the very way that Jesus came into our world. We do not get to choose. It is fully both. The way of Jesus is that he calls us to a holy life 
where we, we, where we live out, we, our lives reflect the standard we are called to in God's holiness that was satisfied in the righteousness of Jesus for us, and that we're also called to repentance and fellowship in that, so which results in that purity of life, but also that we are called to live lives as the incarnate body of Christ, as the church, who in that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He has called us to do that. He came to care for the poor and the afflicted. Who did Jesus spend his time with? The marginalized, the oppressed, the downcast. Who did he choose to establish his church in the world? We'll come to this more in a minute, so let's just keep moving. But he came to those who were most in need and helpless to overcome their desperate situation. So to summarize, this, this true religion, this true faith, it would be to live a life of sacrificial care. So we see that we have self-control, that our tongues are tamed, that we have practical compassion, personal purity expressing itself in sacrificial care. God is concerned with the personal and the public, the personal and the public life of all those who are in Christ. They should be, that our lives should be both radically transformed and committed to the cause of Christ. The radically transformed life is the one that expresses the holiness of God, and then the one that is committed to the way of Christ calls us alongside those who are in need. Our true religion will manifest the manner of the Messiah as we live unto Him. That's where we're at. So here in verse 27, we see the call to care for the widow and the orphan. And we can mean this quite literally. It is quite literally meant here that we should, especially in the context that James is writing, this is before insurance. If a husband passes away, he doesn't leave insurance. This is, this is before the, you know, the, we, we have all these organizations. It was, it was dependent on people. You look at the story of Ruth, and when she lost her husband and her sons, it was hopeless for her. She just resigned that her life... And this world was hopeless. She had an eternal hope that she would one day realize again, but as for this life, it's done. And one day, it'll be good, but here's done. Like That's what you see. And so there was this mandate, like you cannot neglect those among you that are helpless. So quite literally, we are called to the widow and the orphan. We're a young church. So in our midst, we don't have elderly. We, lo- we would love for that to happen. Let's pray for that. Let's invite our elderly neighbors and grandparents and parents and whatever else. Let's, let's do that. But we're young. But we have family. We have neighbors. Man, let's take the opportunity. Let's take this, this, this command literally. And let's, let's be intentional to care. And let's invite each other in to care for those who, who don't have any support. And then the, foster, the, the orphan. I mean, it is, this is... This is an epidemic, and it's a need, no matter where you are. Um, we've got the Janots in our church that are very active in foster care, and, and, and I have a heart for adoption and fostering, and I know that many of you do too. And we want to tangibly engage. I mean, be prayerful. Respond how you can, whether it's th- one of the things I love that our church is doing is there's many of you that have gone to Depelsion, which is an organization the Janots are with, and you've gone to get certified just so you can babysit foster children because they can't, these families can't just let anyone babysit a foster child. So again, if you want to respond in a tangible way, go get certified to babysit foster kids. Maybe you can't foster a child today. Maybe you should. Maybe that's you. But if you can't, you can at least get certified to babysit. So quite literally, but it also extends to all those who are in need. 
So at the end of the day, there are people in this world that are helpless and that need help. Simply, we are to have the posture of being selfless and, and responding with action. To neglect those that are in such need is to deny the very heart of God. This is not an option, but a command on the church. So I pray that we would be a community marked by joyful, sacrificial care for all of those in need. So, let's keep moving. Oh, gosh, that's, that's like a whole sermon in itself, and we're, we are actually almost we're past halfway through the sermon. So let's move fast. This call to be unstained, as verse 27 wraps up, from the world is also a transitional statement that leads us to this next section where James immediately moves into application in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 2. This goes, when we think about this living unstained, it's, it's way beyond just living a moral life. It's, again, it's not just limited to morality and, and enforcing morality and pursuing, pursuing something far greater. James mentions the world in this text, and he mentions it three other times in his letter. And each time that he mentions the world, he is contrasting the world system, as we know, the, the world system of this temporal with the way of the kingdom of God. So he's calling us, he's calling us to this completely countercultural way of life that we inherit and are called to in Christ Jesus. So to live unstained is not just to pursue morality, but is to, to live, uh, again, we, we talked about taking off, we talked about taking off the, the, the world last week and putting on Christ. It's that idea that we are covered in Christ and His holiness and we are, we are running after Him and not this world. Again, we'll unpack that more as we go. So here we go real quick. Let's move into this text as we pursue what it is to live this countercultural life for those who are in Christ. James 2.1 says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So we're talking about a faith that is perfect, pleasing, acceptable to God, and offering up to God a perfect religion. And now its application immediately is, well, here's a way that you can express this in your life. He says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Immediately, James calls us to a countercultural way of showing no favoritism. Do you, that sounds easy. Like we hear that and it blush. We're just like, cool, got it. No favoritism. Are we done? It's not, I mean, like, just, just take a take a moment and to really think, to look at your life, to look at yourself. We are so prone to favoritism. The world is based on it. I mean, there, there are entire courses of study and classes and programs that are built around networking to influential people. I got, a, I got an invitation in the mail that says, if you want to learn how to not only influence people, but control people by creating, and it was just like this whole thing of like, you need to align yourself with certain people in certain ways. The whole world is based on favoritism. It's all about developing relationships that can help you gain. You show favor to those who will benefit you the most. And so do, in doing so, we marginalize and neglect those who are less powerful, connected, or influential. Even just, and I mean, I think about like student ministry, and this is, this is somewhat, I mean, there is good in this, but, and I get it, but I just think about student ministry, and it's like, focus on the athletes. Focus on the cheerleaders. They're the influential ones. They're, through them, the change is going to come. You know, and it's just like, I mean, is our God that small? Because the gospel that week, 
but we work through favoritism. It's just ingrained in us. And again, the intention there is good, right? But yet we see how deep it goes. We shouldn't be guilty of this. In our humanness, we are. Favoritism is so ingrained. Is so ingrained. Is there any hope? In the rest of these verses today, we have, and we're going to work through them quickly. We have five glorious reminders that will lead us away from favoritism and closer to making the kingdom of God tangible to those around us as we express the manner of the Messiah. So we're going to work through five reminders to fight against favoritism today. So the first one we come to is that we, we need to be reminded that we are captivated by the glory of Jesus Christ. And I'm speaking these in the present tense. We are captivated. So that means this is for those who have acknowledged Christ as the Messiah, have committed their lives to follow Him. If that doesn't describe you today, I want want you to know that this is an invitation. This is a way of life that is free, that is full of joy. Yes, it's hard, but this is, this is what we were created for. Therefore, this is where the joy lies. James 2.1 says, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We are captivated by the glory of Jesus Christ. Talking, here we're talking about the glory of God that is embodied in Jesus Christ. It is when we think on Jesus, are we enraptured by the glory and the majesty and the splendor and the beauty? Are we, are we all inspired at the reality of Jesus Christ? Is he just a person in a book? Is he just words on a page? Is he a life to admire or is he a person to be in awe of? A couple weeks ago, we had a leadership retreat, and we were talking, we were just trying to understand kind of where the Lord has us and how we need to respond moving forward and kind of how we can call each other to mission. And, and, and one, one person said, man, if we could just help each other fall more in love with Jesus, if we could just help each other see Jesus for who he is and fall in love with him, be in awe of him, our lives would naturally align to the purpose of God. And that's it. In Christ, we should be captivated by the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of God embodied in Him. Being captivated by the glory of Jesus Christ defeats favoritism for two reasons. First is that we see Christ's supremacy over the wealthy. When we think of favoritism, it is giving honor to, correct? So when we think about this favoritism that is destructive, it is giving honor where honor is not due. And if we are in awe, if we are captivated, captivated by the glory of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden those who, and to say the wealthy, let's, and I think I had this in my notes later, but just to dissolve any tensions, like it is not wrong to have money. It is not wrong to be rich. And, and just as it is saying, do not show partiality toward the rich, it doesn't mean that we should take that partiality and show it towards the poor or those who are less, less resourced. It is all about the affections of the heart, the priorities of your life, and that which you have committed, all that you have is it is all a gift from Him for His glory. So just to put that out there, let's let that be foundational. Let's let that be a lens. But as we see the supremacy of Christ, those, who, those, those people that we tend to be enamored with, that we set up as our saviors, that we set up as our hopes, that are, as our marks and our examples, all of a sudden we see them for who they are. They're people who have no other hope outside of what we have, who have no other strength outside of what we have, who have no other need less than what we have. And all of a sudden we are drawn once again. It's, it's this like full cycle. We, we start with the honor and, uh, and the glory of Jesus that helps us to see 
uh, mankind rightly, and then we are brought back to the honor and glory of Jesus. So the glory of Jesus calls us to honor Him above all. So we are not enamored. We are, we are, we are freed from the supremacy of the influential and the powerful and the rich. Secondly, we remember Jesus' sacrifice for the needy. This Lord of glory, this Jesus, the Son of God, God Himself came down as the lowly to save the lowly. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Because Jesus came, we can be rich in Him in a way that matters and has eternal impact and not just temporal impact. So don't attribute the glory and honor that belongs to Jesus to the powerful in this world. And don't look down on the needy. Do not despise. So we are captivated by the glory of Jesus Christ, and in that we see our first reminder of how we can fight against favoritism. Let's keep reading. James 2, 2 through 5. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or, or, or hey, you can sit right here at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Now, this is key. This is helpful for us to think about what we were just talking about, about how we can have, how we can have or have not and, and be right before God. So the second reminder is this, is that we are gripped by the grace of Jesus Christ. We are gripped by the grace of Jesus Christ. Notice five, verse 5, it says that God chose the poor to be rich. God chose. He enacted. He set His action in motion and achieved the work. So when we think about the poor, we, there, there's a couple of ways that we see that we see this referenced in Scripture, and this, in, these are both in full view here. First are the physically or the materially poor, and we see the call to care for them, the call to not neglect. Psalm 68.10 says, Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. This is the physically, the materially poor that God cares for. Galatians 2.10 in the New Testament says, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So we see at first the heart of God expressed to care in real ways for those who have not in the physical and material world. The other way that we are poor is to be spiritually poor, to be poor, poor in spirit. And we, I think we referenced this last week, possibly. Matthew 5, 3 in the, the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there, that is speaking in the positive, to be poor in spirit as a Christ follower is to remember your great need for, for the grace and love of Christ. His intervening on your behalf, atoning for your need, and, and, and restoring your relationship. And, and it's also bringing to light that anyone outside of Christ has the, the, is, is the impoverished to the greatest extent that you could ever imagine. 
So the heart of the gospel is this, that grace is shown to those with physical need and more importantly, to those with spiritual need. So we are gripped by the grace of Jesus Christ and therefore we cannot show favoritism. In this, we must see that Jesus Christ, he reverses our status in this world. Again, think, remember, countercultural. Everything is upside down. It's like, it's like golf. It's just a game of opposites. Like if you're, if you're hitting it to the right, you, you, you roll your club over to the left. You know, you, it's just crazy. So anyway, that's a whole other really great application point. So for your golf game, just remember game of opposites, and that's a good starting point. But it's this countercultural way to life is, is that it, he, he, he reverses our view of our status. He reverses our status in this world. We see much of this in all of Jesus' teaching. Just an example is Luke 1.53. He, it says, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. So we see just, again, what, what elevates someone in this world is the work, it is experiencing the work of God in Christ. We see this in Paul's teaching. If we ever think that, that Paul is, is counter to James, we'll see it a couple of times, him reinforcing this. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So take heart. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be able to do all that God can do. And elsewhere in Corinthians, Paul says, you know, he says, you know, I, I take joy in my weakness because it makes the, the strength of God all the, more, all the more obvious. His glory is made known through my weakness. That's my paraphrase, but he speaks that as well. So we find our richness in Christ, not in this world. Our status is not, is not determined by the things of this world, but by the fact that we are sons and daughters adopted into the family of God, secured in Christ. That God has seen us that way. He's given us value. And we see this just go read the Bible. It's messy, but read it. Like, who does God, just, just read it and look for who God uses. Look for who, when, when God enacts judgment against a people, look why. Often it is because they acted against the poor. They acted, they acted against those who were outcasts, those who had no, no help and no hope. He built his church on a bunch of nobodies. So we find our richness in Christ, not in this world. And then secondly, we see that Jesus transforms our standard in this world. James is challenging who and what deserves our honoring in this world, like what we were just saying. The believers at the time were honoring the very ones that were oppressing them. Do you realize that? They had been occupied by Roman rule and cast out of their land and their homes and their properties, and they were possessions were taken, and yet they're longing to... To, to, and they're clamoring for the attention of those that are doing this to them. It's the same thing we saw to the people of Israel in the wilderness. God had delivered them out of slavery and atro you know, atrocious oppression, and yet they're just when they get hungry, they're like, man, gosh, I wish we were back in Egypt under that heavy hand of Pharaoh. At least we would have had zucchini to eat instead of this bread. It could be so much better. I mean, it's that stupid. But that's what's happening here. He's like, we are long. He's like, you're, you're longing. Your your affection is for the very ones that are acting against you, and he's calling us to see that. So, 
It's about how we define what is good, what our affections are aimed at, where our, our, our securities are, who we find comfort in having relationship with, who we find identity having relationship with. Anything short of Christ will fall short. It is only in the grace of Jesus Christ that our standards will be rightly aligned with the kingdom gospel where all have dignity as an image bearer of God and no wholeness and the seat of privilege in the family of God in Christ. And to say privilege, it is not a power to be exerted over the people around us, but one to just rest in and to have joy in. We must see ourselves in the world through the gracious lens of the gospel of grace. All right, let's move quickly. I'm going to try my best. Uh, 6 through 11. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? That's Jesus. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And if you're sitting here saying, well, I haven't committed adultery and I haven't committed murder, so I'm good. Just let's get into it, okay? So the third reminder is this. We are devoted to the law of Christ. The law of Christ. And, and if you've been around for a while, maybe that sounds paradoxical because didn't, didn't Christ come and somehow the law is, we have a different relationship to the law. Yes, but he didn't abolish it. He fulfilled it. So fulfilling the law of liberty that we see in verse 8, this is what we're talking about. The law of liberty is the law from Leviticus 19 that was fulfilled in Christ. So what did those say? Let's talk about that. Leviticus 19, 15 through 18. We've shifted into high gear, if you can't tell. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defeat or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. So he's like putting a stamp on it. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So maybe there's some familiar sounding stuff in there. Jesus summarizes all of this in what we call the great commandment. We see it in Mark 12, 28 through 31. This is the law of liberty. Is the law of liberty is the law that results in freedom, and that is the one that is fulfilled in Christ and the one that his life has compelled us to. So verses uh, Mark 12, 28 through 31, it says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is this. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's a direct quote from Deuteronomy. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And as we think about verses 26 and 27, that's basically what they were calling us to. Love God, love people. Love God, love people. This is the expression of the law of liberty. We are liberated to this way of life, living a life of ascent, of affection unto God, 
and unto people around us. This is why being devoted to the law will kill favoritism. Favoritism disrespects mankind. Favoritism in the Greek here is is to receive according to the face. We are limited to see the outside. We make judgments on the outside. Again, what people wear, what they have, what they do, what their titles are. That's how we work. God sees the heart. He's calling us beyond just the outside, just making face judgments. To judge according to the outside is to deny the way, the way that God sees that person, and therefore we dishonor that person. What are the outward things we judge? I just named a bunch of them. One of the ones that's really tricky for us is ethnicity. Um, and, and, I mean, how often do we needlessly give some ethnic modifier to a person? But, but why do we do that? Like, why do we have these needless modifiers? It's because it is so ingrained in the way that we think. And again, it's not necessarily that we mean that in some, some, some negative way, but yet it just shows like how weak we just are so entrenched in seeing the outside. But we think about ethnicity and like, I mean, we just walk, walk into the lunchroom as a high school student and you see, you see a table uh, uh, that is the ethnicity that you are whatever you are, and then you look at another table that is, is full of an ethnicity that you are not. Here's how it goes. You look at the table that are people like you, and you say, you say, they're like me. They're safe. That's comfortable for me. I have something to gain. I'm going to go sit with them. Or the, t- the table that's full of the ethnicity that's not like you. On the inverse, they're not like me kind of makes me feel unsafe makes me uncomfortable I have nothing to gain I'm gonna go over here relating to someone only on the grounds of how they benefit you or not dishonors them and again when we see people through the lens of the gospel we see people as part of all of God's creation all of a sudden there's a commonality commonality in, in our origin, a commonality in our hope, and if we are in Christ, there's a commonality in our identity. We're, so this is what we're being called to. We're being called to this, this way of seeing people, and it's hard, again, like, we're, 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 we cannot see anything but the outside, so let's give ourselves some grace, okay? Give yourselves grace, but man, let's just strive for this. Let's run after this, and let's, let's examine our hearts if we see these needless descriptors being, being thrown out in our words or in the way we see people, these needless categories. And man, let's dig into the heart of God, the way he sees his people, and man, let's let him transform us. Favoritism also dishonors God himself. Verse 10 tells us that in breaking one law, you break them all, and in breaking any one of them, you offend the lawgiver. So to show favoritism dishonors God, plain and simple. Plain and simple. So we don't want we, we to disrespect mankind. We don't want to dishonor God. So we, we have a love for the law. We are devoted to the law of Christ. And then coming into, real quickly, the end here, James 12, 2, 12, and beginning of 13 says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. We're going to stop there. Our fourth, remind, fourth reminder is that we are aware of the judgment of Christ. Favoritism is serious enough that James takes us right to judgment. 
we must be reminded that our words and actions will be called to divine judgment. Now, in Christ, our eternal judgment is called not guilty. We are made righteous in Him, and when God looks at us, He sees that because of Christ, we are not guilty, but yet there will be a day when we will answer for all of our actions and words and thoughts. Our words will be judged. Matthew 12, 36-37 says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So, let's submit our thoughts and our words unto God. Let's think before we text, before we post, before we call, before we email, before we speak. Our deeds, or the lack thereof, will be judged. Romans 2, 6-11, through 11, once again coming back to Paul, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Man, and I read that, and a couple of things come to mind just real quick. One, again, let's just speak a word of grace here. If you are... Again, a Christ follower on the journey, on the way, and you see these things manifesting in your life, but yet you are wrestling, you are convicted, and you're surrendering, and you're wrestling, and you, you make progress, and then you stumble, and then you, you, know, and you, you repent, and you move forward. Like that's, that's part of maturing and growing in Christ. If there's an unrepentant, reviling heart in you, then it's saying, one, is saying, you, you better check yourself. Two, I would just encourage you, like, is there a true transforming faith in Christ there? Just out of love, let me ask you to pray for that. Because if it is just a, a, posture, a consistent posture of heart, a way of life, a way of seeing the world, then maybe there's no transformation yet. And I, and I just submit that to you humbly, but lovingly say it's, it is, there's nothing more important to consider. But when we think about this, it, I, I think we would all feel, how can any of us measure up? And I thank God that, that he gave us this answer, this hope in the, ne- the closing of verse 13. And it says this, mercy triumphs over judgment. So our fifth reminder is that we are reflection. We are a reflection of the mercy of Christ. See, justice and mercy come together perfectly in the cross of Christ. God is 100% just always. And, and a just, if, if, you, if you haven't heard it before here, a, ju- a judge can only be just in one way, if he acquits the innocent and condemns the guilty. If he acquits the guilty and condemns the innocent, he is not just. And so God being just must always condemn the guilty. But in Christ, on the cross, his mercy prevailed. And in Christ, we can be called righteous. Not just that he said, okay, I'm not going to call you guilty. He actually sees us as if we have never sinned because of the righteousness of Christ given to us in confession and belief. So when we have experienced that mercy, we are taught how to, how to express that mercy. God's mercy in you God's mercy in you overflows from you. This is our hope. So we can never measure up, but in the cross of Christ, 
we have. He measured up for us, and then we are invited into a life of living undivided, unfractured, expressing the mercy of which we has taste, uh, that, we, that we have tasted. As we have received mercy, so we extend mercy. Forgiveness leads to forgiveness. Matthew 6, 14-15 says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So we see that because we have tasted mercy, we extend mercy. And then James kind of presents the negative side of that. It says if we do not extend mercy, we don't get mercy. If we do not extend mercy, we demonstrate that we have not received mercy. So it's not causal. It's not that you, you, you show mercy to get mercy. But it's that we, it's not, you know, it's not that we earn to get our mercy is an expression of our identity and experience in Christ. The manifestation of mercy in our lives becomes an evidence of those that have experienced the mercy of God given in Jesus. So let me close with this. So we see the true faith. Right religion is expressed through real action that is consistent with the heart and law of God. It manifests in real action, like caring for the widow and the orphan and the needy, not showing favoritism and extending mercy to all because we have experienced so great a mercy. All of this comes from the inner reality of a totally transformed heart. So the point of this text that we're driving at here is that true faith that pleases God is always expressed in love. True faith is proved in love. Guys, thank you for hanging with me this morning. I know it was a little bit longer than normal, but it was just so good, so much to get to. But, man, let us pray that that would be the expression of our lives. Let us call each other to it. Let us extend mercy to one another and uh, exhort one another in truth. Let me pray for us. So, God, this way of life is so far beyond us. Lord, I, I, I'm humbled I have some trepidation just of thinking about my inability to, 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 to manifest this. Lord, I see just, I think, through the kind of the, the film of my life and of my days and how often I'm motivated by what I can get from people. And so, Lord, I just pray for your continued sanctification, transforming us, refining us, making us more like you. I thank you that... that as you call us to this with great urgency and intensity, you've invited us to, to, to walk through this in a relationship with you, Lord, under your grace and your care, and Lord, with your great patience. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would hear your truth, that we would respond, or that we would know that uh, affection is birthed out of submission to you, God. And so, Lord, we just walk in obedience joyfully. Lord, be glorified in us. Let us, be, let us be a people that hear and do the word. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. Lord, in him we have hope, life, mercy, forgiveness. Now let us respond well in communion. In Jesus' name, amen.